Well, it gives us good opportunity to get on with um, uh, what I wanted to get on with. It's Romans chapter 6, and we're going on to verse 17 of Romans chapter 6, and um, it's, a, it's a long verse in um, explanation, and uh, so I want to get on with it. Okay, Romans chapter 6. Verse 17. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. And I want to go on with what we were saying last time. Um... Probably the most difficult doctrine for anyone to grasp is in verse 16, which is, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves slaves to obey, his slaves you are whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And last time we looked at the fact that the word there really is slave, not servant. You're absolute slaves, either to sin or to righteousness. And... We came to the conclusion last time, if you remember, that there are two great principles in the world. Two great powers. And firstly, we must always realize that we are serving either Satan or God. We're never neutral. There is never a time in any man's life where he is neutral. You are either the servant of the Most High God or you're serving the devil. There's no neutrality. No one can turn around and say, well, you know, I, 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 sometimes I, I serve God and sometimes I do what I want and sometimes I, I sin and do what the devil wants. That is an absolute deception and lie. You can only do one of two things. There are only two powers in the world that you can serve. That is either God God or the serpent, Satan. You can never ever serve yourself. Don't think you can. You can't. And those two great powers are the two, two things in this world that we looked at last time. And I don't want to recap. I know that many people have thought, and it's one of the doctrines that people like to have, that they've got free will. But man never had free will. Man never will have free will. A man cannot have free will. You say, well, surely free will is something that everyone has. Well, Scripture refutes it totally, utterly, completely, and I do not believe anyone's free. You are either, no, you not, it says, to whom you yield yourselves slaves to obey, his slaves you are. And once you obey either Satan or God, you become his slave. And of course, we're all born in sin and shapen in iniquity. Therefore, we're the slave of the servant from the serpent from the day of our birth, aren't we? Hmm? And so we came to that conclusion. And secondly, we discovered that it was impossible for anyone to serve both powers. You can't serve God and the serpent. It's quite impossible. And the third thing, um, 
what we talked about is that you really show whose slaves you are by the way you live your life, by your manner of life. I can always see who's master in your life by your manner of life. It's quite simple. Now, of course, I'm not talking about just your outward performance and action because um, you'll see that's refuted in verse 17, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Of course, it mustn't just be an outward conformity. It has to be an inward reality. And we're going to come on to that. Um, and we're coming on to verse 17. But those three things, you remember we discussed last time and came to the conclusion that they were three fundamental principles. you all remember that? Okay, that was just a recap of what we did last time. Uh, I don't want to repeat the whole of that meeting. So we go on to verse 17 and it says, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And it's glorious, isn't it? Um, and this verse, above every verse in Scripture, defines exactly what a Christian is. If you want to know what a true Christian is, this is the verse that tells you. And that's why it's so wonderful. Uh, this is a verse that actually sums up the whole of the gospel, truth. And it's the verse that on which hinges the whole of this epistle, in a way. It's almost pivotal on the, on the whole of Scripture. So if you want to know just whether you're a Christian or not, this verse will tell you. And So we're going to look at it more closely. And the first thing you'll notice is he thanks God, but God be thanked. Now, Paul's put a but there, and obviously it's a conclusion from verse 16. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. That's something that you were. It's not something that you are, it's something that is past tense. You used to be the servants of sin. Thank God. You used to be, but now you've obeyed. And so there is a change. And one of the first things in this scripture we have to see is that anyone to become a Christian has to undergo a fundamental change in his inward being that sets him free from slavery to sin. You were the slave of sin, but now you've obeyed the doctrine. You've obeyed it. And that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, and being then made free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness, he goes on to say. So there's a, a tremendous transformation. In a Christian, the first thing you notice is you were servants of sin, slaves of sin. Now... You're slaves of righteousness. That is the first qualification for anyone who's a true Christian. There has been a fundamental change in his slavery. Not that he has ceased to be a slave. No, sir. It's just that you're a slave to a different master. That's why Paul often writes, I'm the bond slave of Jesus Christ. Often in his epistles you'll find that he always refers to himself not as a servant. I, I mean, 
I know the authorized version puts servant, but he used the word bondslave of Jesus Christ because he saw that he was either a slave of the serpent or a slave of God. There are no free men. And we must understand that. Never, ever have there been free men in the world. And that's the glorious truth of it. You say, well, what about Adam? What about Adam? Well, Adam was in innocency. And then he made a choice. And at the making of that choice, man lost free will. And that's the truth. That was the end of free will. And therefore we were born and we conceived in sin, weren't we? Do you all remember that? And so his whole argument is, um, really, there are no free men. And I want you to understand that all of us, from, um, what was it, chapter 5 of Romans, verses 12 to 21, the argument goes, you know, you were the seed of Adam. Do you remember? You were slaves of sin. Now you've been born again, you're of the seed of Christ. And do you remember we decided everyone was either in Adam or in Christ? You couldn't be in both. Do you remember that? And therefore, we're now in Christ. And um, we've been changed. And the great change has to come about, and Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 3, you must be born again. No man can enter into the kingdom of heaven till he's born again, born from above by the Spirit. And that fundamental change transfers me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And I cannot be in both kingdoms, and I cannot have a foot in both camps. I'm either in one or I'm in the other. And I must understand that. And um, it's a vital truth. Now also, you'll notice that it says here, you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And it tells us three things. And those three things are vital. Firstly, you have obeyed tells us that the will is involved in the change. From the heart tells me that the emotion is involved in the change. That form of doctrine tells me that the mind is involved in the change. So I have my will, my emotion, and my mind involved in the change. And all those three things must be involved in any change of any individual who comes to Christ. My will my emotion, and my mind. And I want to break it down and make it more clear as to why. Now, you might say, well, um, uh, people um, surely don't have to have all three. I mean, you can, some people would say, well, you can come to Christ without emotion. You know, it's easy to come to Jesus Christ. You don't need emotion. That is a lie. Other people will say, well, God just did something in me. The change came about. I don't understand what happened, but I feel that is a lie. 
And we need to understand that all the faculties of my being must be involved in a true conversion. And I want to point out how. Obviously, I develop in my understanding and light increases, but my mind must be involved. We aren't zombies. We don't come. This is why the kind of trebadering meetings where people come out the front and you lay your hand on them and zap, push them over or help them over or hope God knocks them over or some power knocks them over is a lie if it doesn't basically deal with their mind and they know what's happening. There must be clear doctrine and teaching which tells them because Paul says here you have obeyed from your heart that form of doctrine. That is a qualification for a Christian. You were servants of sin but now the first thing you do is obey the form of doctrine from the heart that's delivered you and then you become servants of righteousness and you can't become a servant of righteousness unless you obey from the heart the form of doctrine which is delivered. And so I need to know what it means to obey from the heart that form of doctrine. I need to know what obedience means, I need to know what from the heart means, I also need to know what the form of doctrine Paul was talking about, don't I? Don't I? Then I know whether I'm a Christian or not. And those are very important things. That's why so many people have spurious experiences. They get the wrong form of doctrine. And you get the wrong form of doctrine and obey that from your heart, you won't come into life. You can't. And so the form of doctrine is absolutely essential to a true conversion. Your mind's got to be involved. So your understanding, it's no good saying, well, I'm a simple soul, I don't understand, you know, there's great doctrines and stuff, I mean, it doesn't reach me, I'm, I'm just simple, I, I just love Jesus. What deception. That's emotionalism. That's not reality. How can you obey something you don't understand? You can't. Can you? How can you be obedient to laws if you have no comprehension of what they mean? That's why the other day, you know, I've necessary because of uh, when you live in this country, you have to make a will. Um so that should you pass into glory, the things left behind aren't stolen by the state. And so recently I've had to make a will, and my wife also, for the protection of the fellowship, so that um, we don't find that the church would fall into the wrong hands, so to speak. And so I had to make a will. Now one of the things about the will is, it has heretofores and thereforthwith, and every, all legal jargon, and I, ha I need a solicitor to explain to me what the thing means. Fortunately, I've got one who can put it down into normal English. Now, a lot of people live and their Christian beliefs are kind of cockeyed uh, doctrinal statements and when you come and you tackle them and say, well, what do you mean by that? What, what actually does that mean? You know, when I'm justified by faith, what do you mean justified? They can't tell you. Well, I'm sanctified by faith. What do you mean? They can't really tell you. They can't define it biblically. And therefore, their faith is false. Because you can't possibly be obeying the true doctrine 
if you don't know what the true doctrine is and have a clear understanding of it. And we need to see that. And it's important. Now, one of the things that always depicts a false cult or a false move of God, or should I say many of the things that... Um, and I want to deal with the errors first, is firstly, um, you'll find the philosophers um, seek... Um, these are the errors. And you'll always know these errors always infiltrate um, so-called Christian groups and circles. The first one is you'll find philosophers who excite and intrigue the intellect with doctrines. You know, people who, who can sit down and, and they'll tell you all about uh, eschatology, you know, the second coming, and they'll explain all kinds of doctrines about the millennialism. Now, basically, they do that because that is where their intellect is. They have no understanding of the real life of Christ. They want to just pontificate upon doctrinal issues and um, those kind of... And they have a philosophy of life. And they will tell you, well, of course, you know, um, our philosophy is this, and they'll talk. And then you get the next set of people who are not really philosophers, but are intellectuals. And they need to be watched as well. Now, the intellectual is interested about the whole problem of life. He's not interested about his sin. Uh, he's not interested about his needs. He's interested about mankind at large. Have you ever met the intellectual? You know, you go to talk to him about something and you say, well, what about your need? Ah, but why are the people in India starving? Oh, you, you know, what about this? And we yeah, are, but um, how come if God's real, you know, the Russians persecute the Christians and are burning them, and you say, well, well, what about South Africa? They say, you know, is it right, you know, can a Christian believe that blacks should be suppressed? Well, I don't know. The blacks believe in Rhodesia, the whites should be suppressed. So why shouldn't the whites in South Africa believe the blacks should be spread? Well, they don't like that kind of thing. Not that I'm voting for one or the other. They're both wrong. But, you know, the intellectuals, they love to give you an argument. And they love to argue and fight. And they'll intellectualize about all sorts of things. And you can never nail them down to their own personal experience. Because it's all in the mind. They've got reasons and causes, but you can't pin them down. Never touch their emotions, and as for their will and changing the life, I mean, for goodness sakes, they don't need their life changed. They're intelligent, rational beings. Um, and, you know, and then thirdly, you get the movements of emotions. And you need to watch this, and it's an error. Um, things can move you to tears. Have you ever watched a film on television uh, and, you know, you're moved to tears by the sadness of the story? I remember years ago, many, many years ago, when I was about six years old, I went and saw a film called Bambi. And I know that <laughs> I got home and, boy, did I cry. It upset me. And that night when I went to bed, I cried because of the fire and all the terrible things. And to me as a kid, I thought it was such a sad film. How many saw that film? How many cried about it? Oh, good. There's other humans here. Um, you can't help it. There's your whole emotion. 
was involved, you know. And, and haven't you seen things, uh, you know, that you've seen and, and your whole emotional being gets involved and sometimes you can hear music and it'll change your mood, won't it? If it's exciting music, you're happy and if it's... You get fear uh, and, and the whole... Your emotions are stirred by music. Turn the television off sometime, the sound off. When there's an exciting bit coming, just turn the sound off and you see someone creeping along, about to jump on someone with no sound. It's funny. It looks absurd. But when you get the kind of mood of the music which they've put in there, then it becomes frightening. Now the fear is engendered by the music, but that's working on your emotion. And you see, there's a lot of ways in which your emotions can get stirred. Now the important thing with music is you must carry a man's mind along with it. You see, your mind, for a true Christian experience, must be involved. That's why we sing choruses over and over again. So the truth of the word gets hold of your heart. It's not just the tune you're singing, but it's the words and the truth with the emotion change the will. But the danger is you can go into churches and you say, oh, you know, we sung such a hymn. And you sing it once through seven verses and you sit down and um, you have a, the prayers and then you stand up and you sing something else. And, and you couldn't tell what words you'd sung at the end of the church service because you'd sung the verse once through and at each verse there was a total change of thought. Now, what you get from that music is emotionalism. You do not get an intellectual apprehension of what's being sung. You can't appreciate what's being sung because you're singing it so quickly and the thought's changing so quickly, your mind can't change that quickly. In fact, some of the tunes are so bad and it's so hard to sing to them that all you're concentrating on is, well, if you're not like me, and you can sing in tune, all you're concentrating on is singing in tune. If you're like me, you just sing and it doesn't matter. Uh, and therefore, you see, we have to avoid emotion and we have to realize that it's wrong and, and beware of people that say to you, well, brother, you know, I, I really don't understand, but oh, I just feel inside, you know. That's deception. That's not God. That won't last. And that is total deception. That's emotionalism. Or emotion uh, just of itself. If you get down on the floor and you weep buckets of tears so that you could take up a whole bucket full and water the garden with it, it doesn't mean a thing if you don't know why you were crying. That's just letting off your pent-up emotions. Now, emotional releases aren't bad, but you must have some reason. If God isn't convicting you by the Spirit and you don't have some understanding, that's why when we sing, you'll notice when we get down into worship, we'll sing a chorus and emphasize a particular truth which gets home to the heart and to the reason. That is worship. Just emotion and crying. Well, anyone can do that. Just get an onion in the kitchen. That's easy. 
I mean, it would be just as valuable as getting to a meeting and having a week. And you've got to beware of emotion just being stirred of itself. Um, and people will, will use emotion. Um, now, don't get me wrong, I, 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 I don't want to uh, appear that I'm against Billy Graham. I'm not. I think that man preaches the gospel. The one thing I don't like about him is the pressure on the will when it becomes emotionalism. And a lot of people come to the front in Billy Graham Crusade just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And out they come, you know, and he calls them out, just come to Jesus. And the trouble is when they get there and you say, some of them don't even know why they've come out. You talk to them. They don't know why they've come. I, I went to Trevor Deering's meetings. A lot of the people, when they come out and you talk to them, no conviction of sin, no understanding of why they came. That's not God, that's emotion. You must understand that for anyone to be converted, it mustn't just touch their heart. It's got to have a form of doctrine applied to the heart that they understand. And that form of doctrine is important. You follow what I'm saying? All right? And then the other thing, the fourth thing is, um, you've got to beware um, of people who uh, appeal to the will only. Now, mainly that's the morality people and the ethical people. And um, a lot of preachers who preach, um, you've got to decide. And they have a minimum of intellectual content in their preaching. You know, they're simple souls. All you do is, all you do is you love Jesus. Come to Jesus. Now, come on, make your decision. Jesus loves you. Come on, make your decision. Jesus died for you. Come on. Now you've got to give your life to him. Come on, you've got to make your decision now. Come on, you know, 20-minute appeal. Have you heard them? 25-minute appeal. Well, you know, if you're sick and you've got anything wrong with you, if you want to pray for your grandmother, come, come to Jesus. If you want to pray for your grandfather, come to Jesus. You know, and they've, by the 20-minute appeal, they've gone through everything so that even your ingrowing toenails is a cause to come to Jesus. And out people come. You know, they're coming for all sorts of reasons. Not doctrinal. They're not coming because they understand a form of doctrine. They're coming because someone's exerted pressure on their will the wrong way. Now that is error. That is a gross and utter abuse of the pulpit. You've got to bring people out and get them to decide for Christ, true. But what about Christ? What have they got to understand in order to be truly converted? You mustn't just pressure them to make a decision unless they know what the decision really is I'm making. You can say to people, well, come on, you've got to make a decision. Will you come? Will you give everything? Jesus loves you. He's got his arms outstretched. Won't you come to him? How he loves you, how he wants you. Won't you come? Come to him. Just come out. Get out of your seat. Walk down here. Come down. We'll pray with you. Just come. People get up. Down they come. They don't know why they've come. But the chap said, come. 
Do you belong to Jesus? Someone sits there and thinks, no, I don't belong to Jesus. If you don't come to him, oh, well, I better come then. I don't belong to Jesus. He said, if you don't belong to Jesus, come. So I'll come. So down they come, kneel down at the front. What have you come for? I've come for Jesus. Oh. Well, why did you come? Well, he said, if you don't belong to Jesus, come to Jesus. So I came. But that won't bring conversion. But how many times have you been to meetings and heard that put over? And people have come on that basis. They'll never get converted that way. What you'll get is a lot of emotional experiences. You've got a lot of spurious baptisms. You'll get a lot of all sorts of things. But what you won't get is a true conversion of Christ. I'm sure some of you had false experiences. How many of you went to an evangelistic meeting and you went forward thinking you'd get converted and you really didn't know what it was but someone invited you and you thought this person had power and you saw other people doing handstands at the front and you thought, well, if I go up there, something might happen to me. I mean, I don't know what should happen but I'll go and try it. A lot of you did that, didn't you? How many tried it? Hands up. Come on, be honest. Look round. You see... Lots of people did that. Now, they didn't know what they were coming for. And actually, it never worked. How many people went out to meetings to receive things and never got them? Hmm? Go on, put your hands up if that happened to you. And you were told to expect things, and they didn't happen. Well, you see, someone worked on your will. But they never actually got hold of faith and you weren't obeying from the heart a form of doctrine, a form of teaching, what you were doing, you were responding to someone who pressured the will. Now, the emotional approach is wrong, the uh, intellectual approach is wrong on its own, and the will approach is wrong on its own. The three must all be blended together. You know, when they make Brook One tea, one of the things they do, they're very careful where they take the tea leaves from. Because... You need a certain blend. If you just take one blend of tea leaf, you won't get brook bond. Um, they blend them all together from different fields and different areas. The taste, otherwise you get a bitter taste, just one leaf. And there are people who paid fortunes to sip tea and spit it out. And they're, what they're testing is the blends. Now, in Christianity... The trouble is, most people swallow what they should spit out. They've swallowed it. And the trouble is, it just doesn't work. And we have to understand that. Okay? I'll show you how it fits in in a minute. Conversion, then, we decide it must be of what? Your mind, your will and your emotions, all three are engaged, it says so, here, alright, all three are engaged, now that you must understand, okay, Uh, now the second thing, number one, the first thing I started with, you remember, was that you were, and you have, that's a change, now the second thing, is there's a change of your life, but the second thing is there's a change of ownership. And you must understand that with true conversion, I change my owner. 
Once I was owned by Satan, now I'm owned by God. All right? And I want to break this down. And if you mark down, if you're writing um, uh, notes, A, you must understand this, that man was a slave of sin. From the day of his birth, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born and shapen in iniquity. And if you turn with me to Luke chapter 11. And in Luke 11. And verse 21. We read this. Or... Um, these are the words of Jesus Christ. He said, When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Now, every one of us had our goods in peace at the time that we were sinners and we were slaves of the serpent and slaves to sin. Nothing ever ruffled us about sin. We didn't feel we were wicked people, did we? I mean, we'd have done anyone a good turn. We wouldn't have hurt anyone. I mean, you know, we'd live by our code. We weren't like the people down the road, you know? Do you know what I mean? Uh, we were, were, well, you know, we were fairly good. Well, I mean, no one's perfect. Hmm? We all have that kind of attitude. And uh, yet, you see, we were the slaves of sin. But our, our, our palace, that's our heart and our life, was in peace. And the throne in the palace was occupied by the serpent, Satan. And we just thought, we thought we were free. I can't believe we were free. But he governed us totally. And Jesus said that, you know, that's the truth of it. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But, when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusteth and divideth his spoils. Now the spoils that the serpent had was us. When Christ comes, a stronger than serp the serpent's there, and what he does is he strips the devil of his armor which he used to keep us under his control. He shoots arrows right through that armor and spears and shafts of light of the word of God, light comes into our soul, the armor of darkness is banished and broken up by the coming of light and understanding, and he loseth, and he has taken from him all his armor. All the darkness that Satan has in your soul, when Christ comes, begins to get stripped away, and Christ comes and he divides the spoils. He says, Father, here's another one. Pluck from the burden. And he divides the spoil. Now the devil can't understand that. And Christ goes on to say, he that is not with me is against me. There you are. You can't be neutral. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. See? Now you can read the whole context of the scripture in your own time. I haven't got time. Uh, I want to go on. Um, but let's look on then in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Just see this confirmed somewhere else, you know. It's good by uh, 
the mouth of two or three witnesses you need things confirmed, don't you? So in Ephesians and chapter 2 Okay, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses in sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all, all of us had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. All of us had our conversation in times past in the lusts of the flesh. There's not one person here who can stand up and say, I didn't. You are the same as everyone else, a stinking sinner from day one. We all were. Thank God there's no one that can stand here and say, well, I wasn't as bad as you. You were as bad as me. You had the same spirit you were born. Now, your manifestation of it might have been more subtle, more socially acceptable, but it was just as nasty. And we were all like that. Paul said we all had our conversation in times past like that. Now we're all under the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Anyone who's not obeying God's in disobedience to God. He's walking according to the spirit of the power, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in children of disobedience. Now everyone's under one thing or the other. And he says we were all like that. And we were the children of wrath. Original sin is something that's a truth that everyone who comes to Christ must know before he can come to Christ. I must believe in original sin. In other words, I am a sinner by birth. That's why I need to be born again. It's not because after when I begin to get old as a baby, I start sinning and therefore I become a sinner. No, I'm a sinner, but from the day of my birth I'm conceived in sin and iniquity. And I need to understand that. And everyone is. Everyone's a slave of sin from the day of their birth. Now, a lot of people don't like that doctrine. They don't want to believe in original sin. Well, you can't come to Jesus Christ unless you do. You can't get converted unless you do. And we had no choice, did we? Hmm? Anyone have a choice? You were conceived and born in sin. Say, well, I have free will. No, you don't, dear. You had no choice. You were born in sin. And you, you obeyed that spirit that worked in you because you were a child of disobedience. It's a spirit working in you. And there's no way you can say, um, well, I had a choice, you didn't. We were all of the same nature, weren't we? Hmm? From the day of our birth. You all agree with that, don't you? There was no way I could choose to do right and succeed. Isn't that the same for you? 
Well, come on, isn't it the same? I mean, when you're not born again, when you haven't had an encounter with Christ, there's no way you're a sinner. Now, it's not, oh, well, I believe I'm a sinner because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and as it says all, then I must be a sinner. I mean, you've got to actually have light enough to be able to see the utter depravity of yourself and what the old Adam is. And that must come by revelation of God. And all of us must, must do that. And you cannot come to Jesus Christ unless you've had that revelation. So someone saying to you, now come, if you don't own Jesus, if you're not Jesus, come to him. Without that revelation, it's stupid. You can't enter into salvation. It's impossible. It's rather like giving people medicine uh, when they don't believe they're sick. They won't bother to take it. It's stupid. You've got to have knowledge of your problem. Um, you might say to me, well, I know people that are different. For instance, there's my auntie Elspeth, and she has never done anyone any harm. Now, she's always been, she's not a Christian. She's not a Christian, but she's a good person. Now, she gives, she goes to church, She's not born in a church. She doesn't believe like you do. But she goes to church and she will, you know, give meat to the little cats around the cathedral. You know, they've got no home. And she'll give money to the poor. She'll send money out to Biafra. She works in the Oxfam shop for nothing. And she does this and she does that and she does the other. And she was brought up in a Christian home. She had Christian parents and... and she isn't like that. She never was like that. And she didn't come to an experience of Christ. She slowly grew into it imperceptibly. No conversion experience. You know, but oh, what a fine woman. You know, my Auntie Elspeth. Now, I want to tell you that she is as much a slave of the serpent as any other sinner. The thing is that she is governed and she's a slave to something different from us. We were a slave, at least, let's talk personally. I was a slave to sin, which was open sin. I, I, I just knocked against society. I guess that's why God called me to be a preacher. He thought, well, if he knocks that way... When he becomes my slave, you'll knock the other way. That's why God takes people from the extremities. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, so God thought he'd be a good converter, you see. And so the worst sinners make the best preachers. I wasn't the worst, that's why I'm not a very good preacher. But that's the way it goes. And what we have to understand is that there are people who are open out and sinners and you can see it and there's no doubt about it they go down the pub they get stoned out their mind they come home they can hardly get the key in the front door they keep putting it in the letterbox and can't understand why the door doesn't open now those type of people you know they're a sinner I mean you don't have any doubt about it hmm? and they're the type of people who, who you can appreciate they go and sing dirty songs at the rugby club you know 
know there's something. Now, if they were Christians, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't be drinking after night in the rugby club on a Saturday night, and you know they go to play rugby, and you don't actually look for the bull, you look for the man, and I mean the whole thing was, you know, a kind of ca- savagery cult, and I enjoyed it every Saturday, and the the thing was, I knew I was a, I suppose I didn't consider myself a sinner, but I just went out, and that was the way I lived. Now, there's no one who knew me that would have said I was a good person. That I know. They wouldn't have said that I, I worked in Oxfam or that I fed the local cats. I kicked them. Um, they wouldn't have claimed that I did anything like that. They knew I was a sinner. Now, I didn't. I considered that I was pretty moral and upright. So I joined the police um, and uh, even played in the police sports teams, you know. They're dirty, I tell you. Um, and and I, 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 I went on and I felt that I was a respectable member of society as a policeman. But, I mean, I wasn't a respectable member inside. And that's the trouble. We demand of people that. Now, you see, in society, there are be down there as quick as I could and lay into them. I mean, I used to love it. Um, that was just me by nature. And I'd go on the rugby field, and, you know, when the scrum parted, if there were two people on the ground beating each other's heads in, one of them usually was me. <laughs> uh, I'd get an early bath. But the, the thing was... I was a sinner. Now, no one would have had doubt, but there are the nice people. The people who have never knocked anyone's face in or adjusted it. Who, who have never kicked a cat. Who, who basically have done nothing wrong, but they are slaves of sin, just the same. But you see, their slavery is not apparent, and therefore people won't believe they're slaves. They've been brought up in a Christian home, they've come from Christian parents, they've been taught all the ethics, and because of that and the pressures of it, they've adopted a mode of life, and they're pious, and they're religious, but they are slaves of the serpent in the same way. They even read the word of God, but they are slaves of the serpent. They're slaves of the society that they live in. I rebelled against the society I live in. They did everything. They did the right thing. They're the type of people who always do the done thing. They would never do the undone thing. I prefer to do the undone thing. But they would do the done thing. You know, it's not done to do that. Um, and they were the type of people now those type of people don't believe they're in bondage but of course they are they're in bondage to the society that establishes what is the done thing to do their lives are governed by that they're a slave of it now of course the devil leaves them alone why should he disturb their peace no one's coming to spoil his goods because everyone thinks what a nice person I mean look they're not offensive they never disturb or upset anyone they're good people good living clean living people ever heard those phrases good decent people you couldn't believe that they were sinners 
goodness me, so and so down the road. Well, that's a different. But them, I mean, they come to church, they go to communion every Sunday, they run the uh, Christian community service, they do all sorts. Uh, you couldn't call them wicked people, sinners. Of course, they've had no conversion. They've never seen their need of Christ. And they're slaves to the ethics, the locality, the doing the done thing, being seen to be good, being seen to be a Christian, in inverted commas. Those people are as the slaves of the devil, just as the out-and-out sinner. Their slavery is more subtle. But the devil owns them just the same. Now, I always think I had an advantage. Far better being an out-and-out rogue. Then when you do hear the gospel, you know when the chap starts talking about drunkenness and stuff, uh, you know that that kind of applies to you. You don't have to beat around. But someone who's only ever sipped communion champagne, or whatever they put in it, um, the person who's only ever, you know, gone to church regularly and is the church warden, you know, I mean, he's got a problem, hasn't he? The person who's the good living, he can't see his slavery. In fact, he won't believe. You tell him he's a slave. Oh, but I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. You tell him he won't believe you. He can't come out of it. Blinded. And if you look, um, it can all be explained. Uh, if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians, just to show you that... Um, no, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just to put it in the scriptural context, I wouldn't like you to think it was a doctrine that wasn't biblical. You might then... And 2 Corinthians and chapter 4... And verse, verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, now it's our gospel, and we're talking about what the gospel is. Um, that is the form of doctrine, which we're coming on to what the form of doctrine is, but at the moment we're talking about the people in error, you see. Now, if it be hid, it is hid from them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now, who's got them in bondage? The God of this world. And how's he done it? Blinded their minds. Now, notice that he hasn't dealt, captured their will, and he hasn't got their emotions, he's blinded their minds. And all three things have got to be involved in conversion. And here we get, now the people who are blinded in their minds are usually the do-gooders. I mean, the out-and-out -out sinner knows he's a bum. I mean, he doesn't need someone to tell him, he knows. He knows that he doesn't deserve any salvation. He knows that. But the good person who does the done thing, 
The God of this world has blinded his mind and you come and you can preach them, you can teach them. The hardest person to reach is someone who goes to church or someone who thinks they're converted. Someone who thinks they're filled with the Holy Ghost. They're the hardest people to reach. The God of this world blinds their minds so that the light of the glorious gospel of truth can't shine unto them. And it takes years sometimes to break through that hard facade to bring light. The hardest people to reach. And you have to understand that. Alright? That's the other type of person. And they're slaves. Blinded. Um, and you want to go back now to Romans. Um, Romans 6. And verse 22 says this. Of Romans 6. But now being made free from sin and become the servants and become servants to God or slaves to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Now one of the things I always look for is have they their fruit unto holiness, the end everlasting life, have they been made free from sin? And what are we talking about? The reign of sin, the rule of sin, and the dominion of sin. Have they been transferred into the kingdom of light? Now that is the big question. With a big question mark. Boom. Underneath. Now I was talking to someone yesterday and he came to me and he said he was over in Canada and he preached to some people. And when he preached to them he said one of the things he noticed when he got into a lounge with them they were all smoking and, and uh, you know cigarettes and that. Um, being, some of them have been a Christian. One had been a Christian five years. and uh, His comment was, well, those kind of things hadn't dropped off. <clears throat> I nearly dropped off. Uh, I didn't bother to listen much to what he was saying. He had no comprehension that, you see, in a changed life, the thing that's dealt with is sin. And I know that when God comes, the form of doctrine that's preached to me must make me aware of what sin is and what it isn't. And as it's preached and the more it's preached, I see my greater need of Christ. And the thing that true doctrine does, it causes me to repent and turn from the wrong things unto the right things and obey from the heart the form of doctrine, the form of teaching I've been delivered to. And that is important. And this man was saying, well, these people, you know, they were Christians. What they needed was the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Oh, you haven't got the power. Dear little darling, you haven't got the power to live a holy life. What you need to do is be filled with the Holy Ghost. Utter rot. What they need is repentance. Well, you lack the power, they say. That's a charismatic jingle bells. And then they try and get people filled. It's a lie. What they need to be told is... You were born and shaped in iniquity and sin and you're a slave of the devil and you've got to repent and be born again. They don't need power, they need conversion. And mark my words, that's the problem with lots of churches. They're trying to get people filled with the Holy Ghost instead of converted. They have this idea that the Holy Ghost is going to bring power. But I must be born of the Holy Ghost. I must know that I'm born from above. You must be born again. Born by the Spirit, said Jesus. And of course that brings about a transformation. 
And the gospel's hid from those that are lost. And if someone doesn't understand, they're lost. You follow that? Your own. You know you've never been free. And you have to become a slave of righteousness. Now, we go on to, in the verse to the other thing that it says. I've got time to go on to it, I think. And that's the form of doctrine. You obey from the heart the form of doctrine. Now, what form of doctrine have I got to obey? That's important to know. I've told you what's wrong. The come to Jesus cult. You've got to be filled with the Holy Ghost. you get the power. Cult, that's deception. Power for the hour, people. That's terrible. You see, one of the people uh, that I talked to recently, um, was sharing with me, people think this. They say, well, why, why, if you're preaching Christ, don't preach the negative. I don't want to hear the negative, just the positive. I want to hear about Jesus, about all the wonders of God, all the wonders of our Jesus. I want to hear how glorious he is. I want to hear. But that's not form of doctrine that brings you to Christ. And I want to deal with the form of doctrine. You've got to obey from the heart that form of doctrine. What form of doctrine? I need to know, don't I? Is it just, oh, just preach Jesus, just preach Jesus, and everyone will come in? Is that the truth? I doubt it. Will that change people? No, of course not. Just believe and accept him. That's a lie. What form of doctrine? You've got to obey from the heart that form of doctrine. You need to know what form, don't you? Hmm. Well, it's quite simple, really. Paul was writing to a people that weren't converted under him. Paul was writing to a people who were absolute sinners and were never converted under him and never came to Christ under him. And he wrote to them, and when he wrote to them, When he wrote to them, he basically was saying to them, look, this is the truth I'm writing to you. I know you weren't converted under me, but here's the truth. And he starts off in chapter 1. And he goes on chapter 2, 3, 4. But what I want to go to first is to explain it... Um, uh, from, uh, let me explain it, really, from the point of view, I suppose I better start with the errors. Uh, you know, you forgive me, starting with the negatives. But you need to know the negatives um, before we come to the what form of doctrine. Now, no, no, don't, don't give up on me. You've got to know the errors. Firstly, of course, it's not the message of forgiveness of sins. That is not the form of doctrine. And it's not the come to Christ. It's not he loves you, he loves the whole world, his arms are outstretched to receive you. It's not 
the you need power clique. It's not the emotional freak, I'm simple type. Those it is not. It's not the decide for him, you know, decide for Jesus type. That it is not. All of those are utterly, totally, unequivocally unscriptural. Totally unscriptural. And there's not an ounce of truth in any of those things. In the way they're put over. And there's nothing to do with God and his gospel. And we need to understand that. Um, and it's a shame that so many churches are full of that kind of junk. Um, the truth is the doctrine's already been elaborated in this epistle. And if you look at it, let's go and we'll start with the doctrine and see in this same epistle, the doctrine that he's talking about, Romans chapter 1, the first thing you need to know is verse 16. Now here it is, this is the doctrine, and the only doctrine whereby you can come to Christ and get saved. Now the first doctrine is Romans chapter 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God unto salvation to, um, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, and God has showed it to them. In other words, the first thing you, that Paul talks about is the wrath of God. And he goes on in this chapter, and you remember, he talks about how the wrath of God's revealed from heaven now. God's given people over to a reprobate mind. You all remember that? You cannot preach the gospel and get people to come to Christ unless you preach about the wrath of God, first of all. And explain to a person that they're under the wrath of God, that the judgment of God's on them. It's not some future thing. They're under the judgment of God. And a person does not know the form of doctrine if he doesn't start with that. This coming to Jesus and preaching an all-loving Jesus is total bunkum. It's deception. God is angry. You can't have propitiation unless you have anger. How can you make peace with someone if you don't know you're at war with them? How do you know you need to make peace with God and be reconciled to him if you don't know you're an enemy of him? You can't. And so the first thing I need to know is my state and God's attitude to my state. God says that he'll pour out vengeance, judgment, and in the end, eternal damnation. And everyone needs to know that. And to preach the gospel, that's got to be included. I need to understand the wrath of God. So when Paul talks about that form of doctrine, you've obeyed from the heart, that form of doctrine, one of the first things they know is that they're going to hell. And the wrath of God's revealed from heaven against them. 
Look, it says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Not it will be, it is. And God's wrath and anger is against you. He gives you over to sin, he gives you over to fornication, to adultery, to drunkenness, to revelings, to all sorts of things. says so in um, verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, a mind void of judgment, to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, bolsters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. First thing I need to know is that's my stay. I'm under the wrath of God, and I can't come to Christ till I realize it. Part of the preaching of the gospel is I need to know that's my state and my need. I don't need to just hear about Jesus and all the positive promises of God in the Word of God. Lift up Jesus and he'll draw all men unto you. True. But you have to explain to people why he was lifted up. He was lifted up on a bloody cross and he bled and died for mankind. Why did he do that? Why was he lifted up? I can't lift up Christ and present him as the crucified Son of God unless I explain to people you're an enemy of God, you're a hater of God, you're a sinner, you're going to hell and Christ has come and paid the price and atoned for you. And if I don't preach that, how will people repent? Why should they? All they've got to do is just come to Jesus, make you... Do you belong to Jesus? No, you don't. Come here. It's easy to see the contrast, isn't it, when it's put plainly. Hmm? Oh, you might not like what I'm saying. Well, you're not coming here to like what I say. You're coming here to listen to it. And if you don't like it, lump it. Maybe if one day God calls you to preach, I'll have to lump what you say. Until then, take two lumps. Number two, and the second thing we have to understand, and this is a second thing that we have to come to a knowledge of, and this is what goes on in Romans, and this is what Paul argues next in Romans, is the utter inability of the human being to help himself. And in chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul points out, we're utterly hopeless. There's no way we can change ourselves or help ourselves. We were born and shaped in iniquity. We're going to hell, and all our best endeavors are hopeless. And he talks about people that are under the law, you remember? And all have sinned and come short of the righteousness of God. And he says there is no way you can obey God's commandments by your first nature. You can't. And so the second thing a person who's coming to Christ and the form of doctrine he must understand, firstly, the utter wrath of God against him, his total um, curse from God, his total wickedness and depravity. The second thing is his utter inability to do anything about it. 
It's no good making a new resolution and saying, well, I'll, I'll keep his commandments. I'll, I'll follow Jesus. Lord, I'll be faithful to you. Yea, Lord, though all men deny you, I won't, said Peter. Cockadoo, said the crow. Or whatever it is. Oh, the crow, I said the cock. Cockadoo. Crow the crock. <laughs> well, I better leave that one out. Crow the cock. But all you have to realize. All you have to realize is there is no way. It's amazing what you can say under the anointing. Um, there's no way that, that, that you can get to a place unless you realize your utter inability. There's a lot of people who are working out their Christian life. And they're trying to live up to it. And you can't. Your nature, your Adamic nature, won't live up to Christ's standards. It can't. You can't educate the old man to be a Christian. You've got to be born from above. There's no way you can be a real person if your old man's still alive and around and kicking and well. And you're trying to crucify him and put him to death and believe in God for sanctification and taking it by faith and asking for power from the Spirit. It's all bunkum. I need to come to the place where I say, well, it's utterly hopeless. I can do nothing about it. My condition's me, and I was born and conceived in Adam and in sin. I'm under the judgment of God, and I can't help myself. I've tried, and it's utterly hopeless. That's the second form of doctrine that Paul goes on about, and he deals with that in Romans uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3. And he ends up with saying, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, morality is useless. In other words, it's useless putting forward a moral code and telling people to live by it and calling that Christianity. And evangelism must contain the part that brings people to a realization of their utter hopelessness. If it doesn't bring people to despair in themselves, a, um, a, a realization of utter helplessness and utter hopelessness, it is not the gospel. If you don't get people who lose hope in themselves and feel they're utterly helpless and utterly hopeless, then you aren't preaching the gospel. People have got to come to that before they can come to Christ. And that's why Paul points out, all have sinned and come short of glory. God, and not one just. No, not one. None that seeketh after God. No, not one. There's nothing good in you. And that is part of the form of doctrine. And then he goes on. And the third thing he does is he points out that only God provides a way of escape. And I need to, when I hear the gospel, I need to realize... I'm hopeless. There's no way out. I can't help myself. I can't change. There's only one way and it's got to be by Christ. And he puts that over in uh, Romans chapter 3. We come to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. You'll see how it's put over. Um, just to tie it once again to Scripture so you don't think I'm unbiblical. Wouldn't like that. Uh, it says this, 
says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I'd say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? By the law of works? Nay. But by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. In other words, nothing I do is going to save me. It's faith in the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary. I can't do a thing. And Jesus Christ is the mercy seat, the propitiation. And I come to God because of what Christ did. I can't do anything for myself. That's part of the gospel. I've got to understand that. I've got to see my only hope is in Christ. And then we go on. Um, and it says this um, in Romans chapter 6. All right, those are the things that are a form of doctrine. My only hope's Christ. My only way of salvation and redemption's Christ. And then it goes on and it says in that verse 17, uh, that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Now, who delivered it? You know, when I get letters in the morning, I know usually the postman's delivered them. But what I need to know is who delivers the doctrine? And it's actually not um, really, in the authorized version, put the right way. The actual literal Greek translation is, whereunto you were delivered. Or, to put it more bluntly, to which, the form of doctrine to which you were committed. In other words, it's not the doctrines delivered to you, it's that you're delivered to the doctrine. You've been delivered or translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light via the form of doctrine. And that's the thing that's delivered you. Isn't it? And we need to understand that. Um, and if you want to know by whom, look in Ephesians chapter 2. Fortunately, this wasn't a long verse. Do you imagine trying to do a chapter in a meeting? Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Who did it? Who? Jesus Christ. Okay, verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Who's done it? God the Father. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Who has um, created us? Hmm? God. Whose workmanship are we? God's. Who's doing the work? God. Who translated us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? God. Who's the author of our salvation? God. 
Who's the author and finisher of our faith? God. How do we get delivered? God. How can we get saved? It's got to be a work of God's Spirit. God's got to do it. I'll end up in hopelessness and despair unless God, by His Spirit, does a work and translate me. I can't believe myself into it. I can't accept it unless God actually imparts that form of doctrine and translates me. I remain dead even though I know all the facts and the truth. God's got to bring conviction and God's got to do it in my life. God. You understand that? It's got to be God. And then you can look just to see that that's not um, the only place. Colossians, it's taught in the same way. In Colossians chapter 1, And verse um, 12 says this, Giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. But who's done the delivering and who's done the translating? God has. So the whole of my salvation is of God. And so I'm delivered by God into that form of doctrine, a manner of life that God brings me into. Now, I don't find a problem with that. Um, and you might resent the teaching to find that you can't do anything to save yourself. It wasn't your belief, it wasn't your will, it wasn't your decision, it wasn't your making. God translated you. God did the work. There was nothing you could really do about it. There was a point at which God zapped you. God did something in your heart and your life and your mind and at that point a transformation took place and you went from darkness to light. Now you can't explain why it happened at that point, why God took that decision. You believed certain things before but there came a point in your life where wham and it happened. Your nature was changed, your inside was changed, your old man was done away, the power of sin was broken, you were translated from kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light. Once you couldn't believe some of the things in scriptures, now you can't not believe, can't um, disbelieve. You find the whole of your life is, is taken up with faith. Now, how did that happen? God did it. Say, well, it was my decision. Oh, no, sir. God in his sovereign will when you heard the form of doctrine, brought real conversion to your soul. God did it. And he only can do it. You can't do it yourself, and you can't believe yourself into it, and you can't take it by faith, as some would have us believe. If God doesn't do it, you can't have it. It's all of God. Amen. I am what I am, wrote Paul, by the grace of God. <laughs> it's only the grace of God that I am what I am. If you want to complain about the way I am, tell God. If you've got to moan about me, he's my master. That's why Paul writes, Who art thou that judgest another, and doeth the self same thing? 
I stand or fall to my master. Got a complaint? Go and see master. I'm his slave. Bond slave of Jesus Christ. Claim, complain to my boss. He, he'll deal with you. He's got a big file for complaints. Millions up there, all sent up. About me. He's got a big box. He's got on the name, name of the box. Do you know what it is? Void. And he just drops them in. And that's the end you hear of them. People say, oh God. You know, they get down by their beds, God, you know, that terrible person. <laughs> just drops them in the box called Void. Ah, well, there you are. Gives you tremendous assurance, this truth, when you know it's all God. Do you know, that's why you believe, that's why you know God, that's why you're saved, that's why you're changed. God's done it. He's the author of it. And if you go on and you look in Philippians, just flick back, it's just before Colossians, and in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, look at this. This encourages me. I don't get worried that every, God's sovereign and that unless God does it, it won't get done. That's my belief. I know it to be true. We used to have a saying in the early days when OCF began, if God doesn't do it, it won't get done. And I remember I often used to say it time and time to people, I said, well, if God doesn't do it, it's not going to get done. And sometimes I sit down and I look back at what God has done and I'm amazed. Um, and in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, when I see Jesus, I know there's going to be a perfect performance of the work that God's begun in me. Now I need to know it's God that began it in me and it wasn't my will that began it. I need to know that God started it and because I know that I've got full assurance and I'm confident of this very thing. Now you might not be confident about me. You might say, well look at the way he is. How can he think he's going to be perfected and like Christ and totally in his image when Christ comes again and take him home the way he is? Pwah! Pwah! God doesn't say you've got confidence. He says, look, he said, being confident in this very thing, he that's begun a good work in you. Now, I haven't got much confidence about the work that's going on in you, some of you. You've got to have that confidence. One thing I know, if God's begun to work in you, he'll perfect it. Some of you have got my doubts. Now, you might have your doubts about me. It doesn't stop my confidence. God started in me and he'll perfect it. And that's one of the glorious things. If you've been delivered to this form of doctrine, you just know that God's begun something in you. You couldn't have done it. It's by faith. God gave you the faith. God's changed you. You knew you were utterly hopeless. You couldn't help yourself. You know that you were under the wrath of God. You handed yourself over to Jesus and he did something in you. Sovereignly. And you know he'll perfect it. And you've got confidence in it. You sit back and say well I have confidence in God now then you get up and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure and we have to we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works don't sit back on, on your laurels and think well okay God you started now finish buster I'm here just waiting finish me because God won't 
You've got to go and you've got to do it by obedience. You notice it says they obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. And the whole hub of it comes that I have the assurance when I'm obedient to Christ. By this shall men know you're my disciples by the love you have one another. And he says, you love me when you keep my commandments and they're not grievous. I know by obedience. And I obey from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered. Being made free from sin, I become the servant of righteousness. But I have to have delivered to me the right form of doctrine in order to come into freedom. The reason most people aren't free from sin and from the power and rule and reign of sin is they had the wrong form of doctrine delivered them. And so they didn't get a true new birth. May God raise up men who preach the right form of doctrine. Amen? Who bring people to truth. Who won't start telling them what they need more power or sanctification, but say, just a minute, you haven't begun. You're not a Christian. You're not born again. May God raise up men who have courage to say that to people. Courage to tell them, you're not a Christian, you're not born again. You're a slave of the devil. And to preach the whole gospel, that form of doctrine that Paul preached to the Roman church. Isn't that what we want? Hmm? People like that, not nice people. Preachers shouldn't be nice people. doing the done thing. They should be people who preach the truth unequivocally and it'll upset many. No one wants to hear is a slave of the devil. Who wants to hear that? Who's going to rejoice their heart when they're told that the judgment and wrath of God's on them? Who's going to jump for joy when they hear that all their do-goodings worth nothing? All their religiosity is sheer sham. Who's going to want that? No one. But when you preach that, you get conversions. You get growth and you get reality. Obedience of faith. I obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine involving my will, my emotions and my mind had understanding as well. Amen? If you've got that understanding... The true gospel preaching brings people to do one thing. Do you know what that is? Do you know what the thing is that it brings people to do? One thing. To see their need and repent. Repent that old-fashioned beginning repent and the preaching of the gospel throughout all the Christians life should always bring them to repentance and seeing their need of Christ and bring them off themselves and to utter dependence upon him and seeing their need for continual repentance don't think that you don't need a gospel sermon you need it more than anyone if you think you don't need it repent Flee from the wrath of God to come. 
Give yourself to God to obey him. That's the form of doctrine that was delivered to the saints of old. And that is the form of doctrine that those people of Rome, Paul thanked, he said, God be thanked, you were the servants of sin, but you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was once delivered to you. And therefore you became the servants of God. Amen? Isn't that what you want? May God forgive us that many of us have not always preached the gospel. We've told people good news and we've wrapped it up in glittery paper and not given them the goods. May God make us faithful to bring people to a knowledge of what they need and of the truth in his name. Let's pray. scriptures than the times of this ignorance the ignorance that the Jews had God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent God commands you to repent if you haven't really seen your utter hopelessness and helplessness if you haven't really had the dealings of God God calls on you to repent. I need to see the obedience of faith. I need to see the necessity of obeying him and his word in every area. Lord, we thank thee for thy word that thy word is sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, by your Spirit, apply thy word to our hearts. We need thy truth, O God. We need to know the truth of the gospel, that form of doctrine. We need to believe it. We need to receive it. We need to obey it from the heart. It needs to be a thing of joy unto us, O Lord, not a thing of grief. We should never feel it's restrictive, but feel the wonderful freedom of being a slave of thine. 